My name is Dave Strozeski. If some of you don't know me, or Dave Stroz for short, makes it easier for both you and I to remember. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church and have uh, have started coming here in 1981. And uh, we just love this local church body and the the fellowship and the the high esteem of the word that that they've placed here. And um, pray that the Holy Spirit would use his word today as I have opportunity to bring it to you this morning while Pastor Mike is gone. And uh, what we're going to do is look at the book of Jude. You can put your thumb there. It's the book right before Revelation. So it's fairly easy to find, even though it's little. It is one of the most neglected. It's been termed the most neglected book of the New Testament. And there's a number of reasons why. There was some dispute over whether or not Jude, the half-brother of the Lord, actually wrote the book, or if someone else wrote it, because it was a little uncertain. There's not a clear definition of who he's actually writing to because it's not like to the church of the Philippians or the Galatians. It's just to believers, and so there's a little uncertainty thrown in because of that. He also addresses some false teaching, but he doesn't especially specify exactly what the false teaching sect is per se. So there's a little vagary there. And he also cites a couple of obscure sources. And so because of that, the book has been neglected over the years. But uh, praise God in his wisdom and by the Holy Spirit, he's preserved the book of Jude as part of the canon of Scripture that we hold to as absolute truth. And so we want to do a little flyover of the book this morning. If you would, go ahead and stand up. We're going to go ahead and read the entire book. It's a short book, so it's only 25 verses. Uh, 25 verses, a little bit long for what we're used to in reading. Uh, it's the downside, but on the upside, you have read a whole book of the New Testament this morning. So look at it that way. Let's go ahead and read. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. 
wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the blackness, black darkness has been reserved forever. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers, following after their ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the little book that's been preserved here for us with its timeless truths that we pray your Holy Spirit would bear down on our souls with the truth of them, that we might be pleasing to you in in all manner of of life and walk, that we might honor and glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that that would be the case this morning as we ask your Holy Spirit to do that work that transforms us into his image. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For you who are concerned, we're not going to go verse by verse, uh, just so uh, I can alleviate that concern right off the bat. We are, as I said, going to do a little bit of a flyover. But to give some background, it's helpful to read the entire book at once, just so you can kind of feel what's going on. The background basically is the book appears to have been written by Jude, the half-brother of the Lord. He, interestingly, came to faith late in life, because you remember, Jesus' brothers were those who chided him and potentially even set him up to be killed when they admonished him to go up to the feast. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that because he knew their hearts. Their time was opportune, but his time was different than theirs. And so Jude comes to faith apparently after the resurrection. According to 1 Corinthians and Acts, we know that the brothers of the Lord were there. So they came to, to faith. And Jude humbly introduces himself in this book not as, I'm the brother of the Savior, but rather, I'm the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And to give credibility to his words, he does say that he's the brother of James, who was a pillar in the church. So it was written by Jude. The recipients of the book were not sure. Like I say, it wasn't written to a Galatians or Philippians, but it was written to believers, probably in the Palestine area, and likely to both uh, Jews and Gentiles. The setting of the time is such that the apostles, this is probably written in 60, 65, potentially even as late as 70 AD, and the apostles, some of them are now dead, some of them are close to dying, some of them are getting older, the church has been scattered, there's some concern because many of the believers expected Christ to return right now, immediately, and it's now been 
20, 30, 40 years. And where is the hope of his return? How come he's not come back yet? Some of the false teachers, Peter tells us, mocked. And so the church might be getting a little bit tired. Not only that, it's in its infancy. While we had all the scripture written by then, the letters were still circulating. They had not been put together into the canon that we recognize as the, as the Bible. And so all these things are happening. And Jude sees these believers and he starts to write to them and say, You know what? I want to talk to you about salvation. I want to tell you about the wonder of salvation. And then it appears that the Holy Spirit kind of stops him and says, Jude, that's great. But in verse 3, he says, I was going to talk about salvation, but I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. This is the only time in the Greek New Testament that this word is used, this uh, earnestly contending for the faith. And it's the uh, hyped up version, the emphasized version of, of agonizing. And it gets its sense from the games where athletes would prepare themselves and work themselves and uh, discipline themselves in whatever game they were going to engage in. And so the idea that, that they were going to give it everything they've got. And as I'm preparing for this, I think, man, Lord, I, I am not earnestly contending for my faith. And so I'm thankful that Jude here has given us some insights on how to better do that. Before we jump into it, to this, I, I love the fact that Jude has given us these strong, spiritual, theologically solid bookends that he starts the book off with and he ends the book with and he drives them as these secure anchors in the beginning of time and at the end of time to give us just a tremendous hope. Look at verse 1. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Kenneth Woost, in his uh, excellent word studies in the Greek New Testament, translates this verse this way. He says, to those who by God the Father have been loved and are in a state of being the permanent objects of His love, and for Jesus Christ have been guarded and are in a permanent state of being carefully watched to those who are called ones. In the Greek, called is the last word of that sentence, and the reason is for emphasis. Jude's saying, you've been beloved, you've been chosen, you've been called before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1.4. You've been set out as his marked special one to all those who are in Christ and who will be in Christ, called and chosen, his banner placed over us is love. And so Jude hammers down the stake of confidence saying, before the foundation of the earth, you've been called, chosen, marked, and his love is upon you. And at the end of the book, the last verse before the little doxology, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Jude hammers down this rock of Gibraltar truth that all in Christ have been called, chosen, and have been marked for his love before the foundation of the earth. And then he runs to eternity future and says, by the way, all who are in Christ are going to be kept there by the dynamos, by the dynamite power of God who will keep you for eternity to make you stand in his presence with joy. So from eternity past to eternity future, Jude takes these two rock-solid truths and saran wraps his book with them and says, this is 
the basis of the truth that you have. Now, let me tell you what's happening in the church and let me help you contend for the faith. There's three things we want to look at. One is why do we need to contend for the faith? And the second is how, which I'm glad for that. I want to know how. How, are we, how do we contend for the faith? And then lastly, to what end? What's our, what's our motivation to contend for the faith? So these three things Jude gives us. Why we must contend for the faith? The problem is this growing opposition of false teaching, false philosophy, false thinking. And while Jude was going to talk about salvation, he quickly changes and says, no, 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 there's something more important here because this false teaching, this false thinking has become so insidious that it sneaks in and you guys aren't even aware of it. It's crept into your love feast. It's crept into your assembly. And all these things are potentially damaging and destructive to your faith and to your souls, and so they need to have attention called to them. Jude without realizing it, used a literary method called vituperation, which according to Webster is a sustained and bitter railing and condemnation for the sake of emphasis. So Jude we see for over half the book, and we're not going to look at every uh, uh, 20 or uh, 12.5 scriptures that would constitute that, but for over half the book, Jude does nothing but hammer the fact that the thinking, the philosophy the insidious ideas that these guys are bringing in is just so bad because they're thinking it's not so bad. We're we're handling this. No, no, no. We're not handling it well. And so Jude says, these guys are like unreasoning animals. These guys are like fallen angels. These guys are like sodomites. These guys are taking care of their own needs. These guys are clouds without any moisture to sustain you. These guys are like trees without any nourishment to feed you. These guys are like waves that spit up shame like foam. These guys are grumblers, critical, arrogant, flatters, selfish. And they've crept in, weaseled in is the sense here. They've crept in unawares. They've snaked their way in. And it's going to damage. It's going to damage your faith. The group is a, uh, apparently with some type of Gnostic sense, Uh, Not sure because it has some characteristics of this and some not. But basically it's a group that uh, brought in primarily a sense of immorality and lawlessness. Uh, Luther faced these same type of guys when he uh, promoted his by grace alone, by faith alone. And there were those of the similar type of sect that he termed the coin antinomianism. People who had no law, that's what the word means that they had no law because they said, you know what, that's just our physical body that's engaged in that kind of stuff and we're concerned about spiritual things. So what our physical body is, no big deal. You can look at, do, see, whatever you want. It's not going to affect you. Jew says that is absolutely not right. Luther said that is absolutely not right. Jude is saying that's absolutely not right. The Scriptures tell us it's absolutely not right. Paul says, how can we continue in sin and grace may abound? Should we do that? May it never be, he says. So these are the people, this is the thinking, this is the philosophy that's creeping in. And it's summed up by the French philosopher Heinrich Heime's deathbed comment. He was on his deathbed, had lived his life however he wanted. And when he got to the end, he said, you know what? I'm not too worried. God will forgive. That's his job. And 
It's often today that people could think, you know what, I'm not worried about the great grandfather of the sky, the great spirit, the great whatever, the great magician, the great mechanic, the great whatever we'd like to think of them, typically, not in according to scripture oftentimes, is, uh, is just false. Um, has God 100% fully forgiven believers? Absolutely. Beginning of time, end of time. But he's telling us to be careful that he doesn't damage our faith in the meantime. What we are going to look at, though, is a couple of the characteristics of these guys that are really illustrated well through the three men that Jude mentions in verse 11, which is Cain, Balaam, and Korah. So we want to look at those guys. We know Cain, we know the story of Cain, murdered Abel. Interestingly enough, we know that his, his sacrifice was without faith. But what's interesting is when we come to First Peter, I'm sorry, First John, that's when we kind of learn what the problem with Cain was. Cain murdered Abel, right? But interesting that First John says, we know that Cain murdered Abel, but for what reason did he slay him? He slayed him because his deeds were evil. It wasn't that Cain was a murderer per se. We know by the book of James that we have murderous thoughts that can well up inside, right? The problem with Cain was that he was jealous. He was self-willed. Even when God himself said, Cain, you can get yourself out of this. Sin is creeping at the door, and you have an opportunity to put it aside and do what's right. But he didn't want to do that because that was going to require too much work, too much effort. It's easier to be jealous of the righteous, to be angry at them. We see people around us. We say, man, that guy's great. I have to seek some kind of problem with him. And we tend to claw and scratch and pull people down instead of encourage and uplift. The problem with Cain, his sin was jealousy and self-will. The second one is Balaam. Verse 11, the error of Balaam. Balaam's sin was essentially compromise. Balaam has always been a little disconcerting to me, that story, because he starts off in, in the, uh, in where his story is described. He sounds pretty good. He uh, is told he's uh, tried to be hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to do only what God says. Balak gets mad, says, look, I'll pay you more. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Balak says, I'll pay you more. And ultimately, finally, the children of Israel curse themselves, and the story kind of ends. And we think, okay, Balaam not, not, doesn't seem horrible, a little, little odd. But then we do learn later in the book of Second Peter that we know that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. We also learn in Revelation that some entered the era of Balaam, which was idolatry and immorality. And what we find out, that Balaam instead of living with the Jews, lived with the Moabites, the Midianites, apparently got sucked into their way of life. While he couldn't go straight out and go against the Word of God that he knew, he devised a way to compromise and come around and say, Balak, I, I can't take your money for that, but I'll tell you what, I'll take your money for this. Just hang around the Jews and introduce idolatry and just get to know them and kind of suck them in. And pretty soon, you'll be, they'll be worshiping your God. You can take their sons and daughters for wives. You can get their money. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The Jewish nation fell in idolatry and immorality as a result of Balaam compromising and going around the word of God and making it work for him for pay. The era of Balaam was compromise. And 
man, is this one that I see in my life? And I think we're so susceptible to this in America, in Orange County. Um, We're tempted to compromise in so many ways. I love Rick Holland's comment one time that above his TV set, he had a, a, a sign that said, we will not be entertained by that for which Christ died. I don't know how often he has TV on. Maybe once a month, I don't know. Uh, Discovery, I don't even, even that. Um, Anyway, we have to guard ourselves against this compromise, uh, whether in the workplace or our relationships or uh, any number of of things that the Lord might bring to your mind where we have to guard our hearts against that. The third man that Jude references that's illustrative for the problems that that are sneaking into the church via these men then and now for us via the internet, TV, every billboard, every, every philosophy and think in the United States that we have to guard ourselves against is Korah, who Korah sinned, if you remember, he was a Levite, but he, he wanted more. He, he did, wasn't content just to be a Levite and help in the temple. He wanted to be part of the priesthood. Well, that wasn't going to happen, but he rose up against Moses and Aaron and demanded that he be recognized. He wanted to be seen. He wanted to make sure that people knew that he was holy as well and was upset that he wasn't seen as one of the anointed, one of the appointed. Korah had a problem with self-importance, with recognition. He was critical. And the story ends that Moses said, you know what, we'll see tomorrow who's of the Lord and who's not. Everybody ought to stand, stand back. And we know that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, his family, his possessions, and the 250 men with him were, were burned with fire. Interesting. You know, those, uh, you know those motivational pictures that you see at work? It says teamwork, everybody plugging together. And then you've seen those demotivation posters that are pretty funny. A lot of places won't let them. But there's one that says uh, mistakes. And it's a beautiful bay, and it has a shipwrecked boat in the middle of the bay. And it says, mistakes. What if your life was only to serve as a warning to others? And what a terrible thought. But in Numbers 26, it says, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died and when the fire devoured 250 men so that they became a warning. Korah's life was to serve as a warning to others. And it was because of the self-aggrandizement, the self-importance that uh, we're all susceptible to. And for Korah, it was uh, lethal. So these are the types of philosophies, the type of thinking that Jude was wrestling with and that we wrestle with today. And so Jude gives us, thankfully, not only the things that, why we need to contend for the faith, but now he gives us some ways to contend earnestly for the faith. The first is in verse 3 of Jude. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. He's referring now here to essentially the Word of God. He's referring to Christianity itself in all of its historic doctrines and life-giving salvation. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We have here the absolute truth. Nothing's to be taken away from it. Nothing's to be added to it. There's no Book of Mormon that came about in addition to it. 
There's no Catholic Apocrypha that will add to it. We have the standing living Word of God that we have to engage with and know and learn and memorize and read and encourage one another with and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another with in order for us to stand fast to the faith in order to hold fast to the Word. The idea here that it was delivered once for all is the same wording used when Christ once for all suffered for the sins of many. Once for all entered the holy place. That we were once not a people of God, but are now made the people of God. This is something that can't be repeated, something that cannot change, something completely unique. Once for all the faith delivered to the saints. And yet, it's under, it's under attack. My daughter-in-law had a visitor from a Bible college come out this last week. Very nice guy. Raised in a Christian home. Uh, went to Bible college. And then now went through the American University system. And is now not that sure that the Bible speaks against uh, homosexuality. Now thinking it's not a big deal that, that men can marry men. We know from other authors that we, who knows if there's really a hell. That, that just doesn't seem right. And so we begin to judge Scripture and let, instead of allowing Scripture to be the arbiter and judge of our lives. Our friend Osta, the Polish girl who's, who was here for many years, she's now in church struggling because of the church she's in. They want to look at the vagaries of Scripture, the gray areas, and talk about them and wrestle with them. And it reminds me of these guys who are dreamers. Instead of holding fast to that which is black and white and we know to be true. We have to hold to the faith. Secondly, we're to imitate God. Verse 3 says that I'm making every effort, I, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Look at this, the only place we'll turn to is 1 Thessalonians 2. We have the idea here that Paul says he was contending earnestly, he was contending against a lot of opposition, but it's the same type of wording. And while it might have been actual physical opposition, Paul might have just been contending for the faith here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he says, We had the boldness in our God in the middle of the verse to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition, with much contention. But then look at verse 5. Here's how he did it. Here's how Paul earnestly contended for the faith. He didn't rant and rave and spew out uh, uh, doctrinal uh, high, high points. He says, We came among you not with flattering speech, nor with greed, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or others. Verse 7, But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. We have a fond affection to you, for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you would become very dear to us. Verse 10, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. We contend earnestly for the faith when we live godly lives, when we live Christ-centered lives, when we seek the good of others, and not just our own good, as we're told in Philippians. When we're looking out for the other guy and one another, that's contending earnestly for the faith. 
Back to Jude in verse 21. Verse 20. Jude says in verse 20, he says, Here's how you also contend earnestly for the faith, but you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Strange thing, because we know that He's the vine, we're only the branches. We know that we can do nothing without Him. We know that in and of ourselves is no good thing, and that everything we have we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And here, yet, He tells us to build yourselves up in the faith. Well, there are things that we do need to practice. There are disciplines that we need to engage in that allow ourselves to be put in a position for the Holy Spirit to work. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, Long for the sincere milk of the word, that by it you may grow thereby. Submit yourself to God and let him hum- let, uh, humble yourselves before God. We have to also constantly talk gospel to ourselves, gospel truth to ourselves. David was a master of this. We know from Psalm 42 and other places, David would talk to himself. He would recognize, the psychologists call it self-talk, and uh, I guess that's okay. Uh, David did some self-talk, but we have to do it in a biblical context. David was feeling discouraged and down, and he talks to himself and says, Soul, what's your problem? Why are you so disquieted? Why are you so upset? And then he talks again to a soul and says, says uh, here's what you need to do, soul. He's talking to himself and he says, hope in God, trust in God. You're going to see him in the sanctuary. And David, by means of thinking through what he knows to be true, encourages himself and builds himself up in his faith. That's exactly what we're to do. In going through the book of Titus a number of years, years ago with the college group, it has stuck with me since. Titus 2.1, Paul is talking to Titus, and primarily in the context of preaching, says, Titus, don't let any word come out of your mouth that is not in accordance to sound doctrine. But not only with preaching, but that's true all the time. Don't let anything come out of your mouth that's not in accordance with sound doctrine. Well, this happens to me all the time. Doesn't it happen to you? How's your week going? Oh, are you kidding? This week, this week is horrible, crummy. Really? Scripture says all things work together for good to those who love God. Scripture says today His mercies are new this morning. It says today is the day of the Lord. Rejoice in it. We've got this wrong when we don't think through biblical, scriptural, gospel truth and apply it to our minds. That's exactly the idea of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is filtering everything we hear and say and do and run it through the mesh of scriptural truth and then realign ourselves with it. And next, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in, praying in the Holy Spirit, Jude tells us in the same verse. You're going to build yourselves up in your faith by putting yourself in a position, but if you're not praying in the Holy Spirit constantly, present tense is where this is, praying in the Holy Spirit, it's not going to happen. But the combination is building us up in the faith to recognize the truth of Scripture, applying it to our life and seeing it bear out and cause Christ-likeness. And faith in ourselves growing and faith in others happening. Verse 21, another way, a little strangely put by Jude, is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, wait a minute. I thought he started this thing off by planting this deep, truth saying forever from eternity past we've been loved by God and showered by God's love 
banner over us is love. And for eternity future, we're going to stand in His presence without stumbling. And here he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. But as G. Campbell Morgan reminds us, this passage is not teaching us to maintain a certain attitude in order to hope that God likes us and loves us. We're not making ourselves lovely to God. We're not trying to be lovely to Him, but rather recognize His constant and unchanging love for us. That's keeping ourselves in the love of God. I've talked to a number of believers, and often the divergent point of difficulty and struggle in their life is when, because of health issues, death in the family, hardships, work issues, relationship issues, employment issues, they begin to wonder and say, you know, I just don't feel and I'm not sure if God loves me. And this path is taken, and the result is inevitably discouragement, disobedience, sin, and everything else that's not in accordance with sound faith. And it seems to start with this idea of, "Ah, man, I just don't know if God loves me. And yet, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God, fully recognizing His love for us. Psalm 147, I, I, I love this, says, He delights in those who hope in His unfailing love. Do you want to be a delight to God? Hope in His unfailing love. That'll do it, according to David. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, whether it's death, life, things present, powers, principality, nothing, according to the book of Romans. A man was dying of cancer, and uh, it was... was, uh, He only had a short time left, and he left notes for each of his, I think it was four kids, with instructions not to open them until after his passing. And uh, the youngest daughter uh, couldn't bear it any longer and opened the note. And it said, uh, I I love you so much. You were always my favorite. Don't tell the others. And uh, boy, she just thought back on the love that her dad had for her and her love for him and the special times that they had. And just, uh, it was very meaningful during those last days. And she'd visit him at the hospital and they'd talk. And, and then he, pa- he passed away finally. And uh, the mother knew that uh, he had written notes to each of the kids. And they were all gathered around. And she says, hey, he says, why don't you guys all read the notes that your dad left you? Well, you know, you first. No. You know, and they didn't want to read. And, and uh, come on, you guys, just read the notes. So finally, the, the youngest daughter reads the note and says, um, I love you so much. You were always my favorite. And the other three chimed in, don't tell the others. <laughs> God somehow, in His matchless, unending love, loves us uniquely and similarly in such a way that it's as if you're His favorite. Just don't tell the others. John Wesley wrote simple words. He said, uh, let's see. Well, let's, uh, what did John Wesley say? He, uh, oh, I can't find it. Um, John Wesley wrote some great words. Basically, it was, he, he loved us, he loved us, he loved us so much. And then he, uh, 
he, uh, he says, we don't even know why he loved us so much, but he completely forgave, and uh, he loved us, he loved us, we don't even know why. I know that didn't rhyme, he made it rhyme, but uh, I, I, can't, I can't find it. So, lastly, what, um, the other thing we're to do is reach out to others, we're not going to have time to look into that, but the idea is that, you know, the church has been known for, wound, for shooting its own wounded, and here Jude is saying, you know what, have mercy on those who are stumbling sin-wise. Have mercy on those who are falling and be kind to help. We need to help one another as a body to encourage and lift one another up. So lastly, what's the motivation to contend for the faith? First of all, in verse 24, it says, He is able to keep you from stumbling. This isn't the stumbling of sin because we all sin. We know the book of James says that we all stumble. And we know by experience that we all sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking here that all true believers in Christ will never apostatize. All true believers will never fall into unbelief. You are eternally secure. I love, though, that this doctrine, to me, ought to be called the preservation of the saints instead of the perseverance of the saints. Because perseverance sounds like I've got too much to do with it, and I don't want any part of that. I'm glad that God is the one who preserved. In fact, the same word here is used when it says God shut Noah up in the ark and preserved him. He kept him from stumbling. And it's the same keep there that we have. And so the saints are absolutely preserved by his power and by his grace. Lastly, in verse 24, it says, Now to him who is able to, make you, to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to make you stand in his presence this is an unheard of posture in the presence of the almighty we know that when god introduced himself to abram to change his name that abram's immediate response was to fall on his face when god appeared to the children of israel moses and aaron immediately fell to the ground on their face when joshua was leading the the triumphal victory into the promised land and the incarnate Christ revealed himself to him and Joshua said, who is it? Are you friend or foe? And he said, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. Joshua prostrated on the ground on his face. We know that when Ezekiel saw the indescribable vision of the divine glory, he fell to his face. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne and the seraphim crying out, holy, 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 he cried out, I'm a, I'm a ruined man. I'm undone. In Revelation, the angels and the 24 elders and the living creatures are around the throne and they fall on their face. And yet because he's placed his love on us who are true believers in Christ, he has made us to stand. No wonder he finishes the book with the greatest doxology in the New Testament to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're very grateful for the the truth and the power and the instruction of your word. And we pray for diligence to add things to our faith that we know are our responsibility. And Lord, we pray in the Holy Spirit knowing that we can do nothing without you. And uh, pray you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that you would transform us into the likeness of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.